Hello from your favorite Grasslands PR team. This week we're back with another reason why these overlooked and underappreciated ecosystems are objectively the best biome. I'm Rachel. And I'm Nicole. And today, surprising probably no one, we're talking about Saiga antelope. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, that is not at all surprising <laughs> to, to me anyway. Um, anytime you say that, though, it's like, what? which direction is she going to go that's uh-huh, not surprising? Uh-huh. Is it going to be like the prairie dog type direction? <laughs> is it going to be a bug? Mm-hmm. But Saiga antelope, very... Very on brand. Okay, I'm excited. Yay. Some news for you guys today. Um, We will be moving to an every other week schedule just for a short little bit, probably through the month of June, and then hopefully getting back on track after that. Um, So our next episode will not be up until the first week of June, and then we'll go every other week for at least a few weeks and then get back on track as soon as we can. Thanks for sticking with us. And uh, we did our first uh, set of school programs, too. So that was really fun. Yes, it was. Just just a busy time. Uh, so forgive us. Anyway. <laughs> Tell us about Saiga Antelope, my dude. <laughs> I will, my dude. So <laughs> I don't know if you even remember saying this last time, but I said that toucans were Saigas that fly. It doesn't make any sense. Um, but no, you it mentioned, doesn't. <laughs> you mentioned that you were very excited to hear why that was true, and here you go. You only had to wait a week, so side <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> You're so welcome. These little guys are so fun, and I love them so much. If you're not familiar, Saiga antelope are these fun little guys that live on the Eurasian steppe. So something we've talked about a couple times, but this 5,000 mile wide grassland ecosystem that spans Europe and Asia. It covers countries like Kazakhstan, parts of Russia, Mongolia, all that area. And it is kind of split by a couple different uh, mountain ranges. So you kind of have like an eastern and a western area. But Saiga primarily are going to be living in uh, five different populations. Um, so they there's three populations in Kazakhstan, one in Russia, and one in Mongolia. Which is why those three countries stood out to me because, yeah, those are my three favorite countries <laughs> because they have Saiga. <laughs> your, your three favorite cu- favorite countries, like period? No, in in the step. <laughs> okay, okay. I can't pick um, a favorite country. Period. That is very difficult. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, can I describe Saiga antelopes for yes. our listeners who oh, maybe gosh. don't know what we're talking about? Okay. Yeah. Prepare yourself. Uh, they are a goat-sized Star Wars creature <laughs> that has like a trunk that only goes to like their lower lip. Unless they are snorting and making noises, in which case it's like, and it gets big. It's true. Um, You missed the hand gestures that went around with that sound (laughs) I made. So just imagine something happening there. Okay. Um, They have eyes that are way too big. They're so cute. And they have horns. The males. Okay. The males have horns. (laughs) Like, we're talking gazelle slash antelope type horns, not like... Uh, bison horns. Mm. Okay. 
Uh, is, and I don't think there's anything else you need to know about them. That's it. They just literally wow. look like they were created by Jim Henson <laughs> for the set of a movie. Yes, it's true. <laughs> but yeah, they're like, in the summer, they're like a little, a light brown color. They got that big O nose. And it really is like a primitive trunk, um, even though it doesn't like hang off their face like we think of like an elephant trunk doing. It is a very unique nose for sure. People love to make Can fun I, of it. I think it's beautiful. It is. It is something. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask why you called it primitive? What makes it a primitive trunk? So Saiga have been around since the Ice Age, but that's just kind of how I've seen it described. Um, so it's not. It's not a full blown trunk. They can't use it to like grasp things. Um, it's not really prehensile like we think of trunks being. So I think that's kind of what sets it apart. Okay. Thanks. But I could be wrong. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but like Rachel said, they're only like tiny goat size. They're about 24 inches tall, 0.6 meters. And they got these little stilt legs and they seem so very fragile, but they're actually amazing survivors. And I want to talk first about some of those adaptations that they have. So... One is that crazy nose. Let's just get it out of the way now. (laughs) (laughs) That nose is actually a great adaptation for the cold climate that they live in. It's not unusual for the steppe region that they live in to reach temperatures as low as negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit. So very, very, very cold. And that nose will actually help them warm incoming air as they breathe. If you've ever gone for like a run or a jog or like, if you're like me, a walk sometimes in the winter, (laughs) as you're breathing in that cold air, it kind of like almost burns your lung and it will lower your body temperature if you stay out long enough. And that's true for the Saiga too. But they have that giant nose to help warm up that air as it's coming in. It's also adding a lot of moisture to the air, um, so that is also very helpful. And then in the summer, these guys move around a lot, and they can move in quite large herds. So as they are moving around, they're kicking up a lot of dirt, and that nose will help filter out any dirt and debris and things like that that they normally would be otherwise breathing in, which is obviously not great. Yeah. Man, the condensation part is probably really important to them, too, because it's such a dry environment in the steppe. Yes. Extremely dry, extremely cold. (laughs) It is a rough place. Yeah. And if you're, like, breathing out and you got the little fog clouds of water (laughs) droplets forming inside of your nose, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. multi-purpose. Yes. They also use that giant nose as a resonating chamber for any of their calls that they are making. So the females will make this really cool mooing noise. It's not actually cool. It just sounds like a moo noise. And then the males make grunting and what is known as a roar. It's not very (laughs) impressive. Let's listen. Wow, what a great roar. (laughs) It's not like really a roar like a tiger, but you know. Just give them, just give them this one thing. They just let it be called a roar. Okay, but I'm not giving them any more things. <laughs> I'm keeping track the rest of this episode. Okay, okay, that's fine. <laughs> they use that big nose to make those calls even louder, so that they can be heard across the step. Because, like we said, it's a very large ecosystem. So if you can be heard and you know talk to the rest of your group or alert them to danger, that's very, very important. 
males will also throw their head around in the winter, which is their breeding season. Their noses get even bigger and the males will throw their heads around and make these horrible, horrible squishy noises with their floppy noses. What? It's, it's bad. I, yeah, I couldn't find any like free to use audio clips, but there's some, I'll, I'll, we can link a video in the description. The squishier, the better to female Saiga though. They just love oh, it. Oh, I don't like that. <laughs> the squelchier, the better to female Saiga. No, <laughs> no, I'm having flashbacks to those giant worms. Oh no, I forgot about those. <laughs> How? <laughs> I don't know. I, just I can't stop it thinking about them. <laughs> <sighs> Gosh. But yeah, so they got that nose. They also have a miraculous winter coat that they grow out in the winter. It's kind of whitish to help them blend in with snow, but it's also very, very thick. One thing that I found out researching them for like the fourth time now, <laughs> the males actually have a little bit of a mane around their necks, and that keeps them a little bit safer for the fights that they do in the winter over females. Oh, wow. Yeah, like the, the hair is a little bit thicker around their, their necks. Super cool. Again, not like a lion's mane, but it's still cool, okay? I agree with you, <laughs> and I won't give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow. I said this earlier, but I kind of want to just touch on this again. These guys are Ice Age relics. They have always inhabited steppe environments. They are extremely adapted to this environment. And they once roamed what is known as the Mammoth Steppe. Such Ooh, a, what, what is that? Yeah, such a cool name. It's also known as Beringia. And essentially it was um, when North America and Eurasia were connected by the Bering Land Bridge, there was a mammoth steppe that stretched all the way across, kind of like the northern hemisphere, basically. <laughs> like, just all of that was one giant steppe known as the mammoth steppe. There were mammoths on it, but there were also things like steppe bison and giant short-faced bears, American lions, and the very first humans arriving into North America. So, ooh, very okay, cool, cool time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Such a cool time period, and Saiga were, you know, one of the only animals to then survive and adapt to a more, you know, specialized kind of role in a smaller area. So I just think that's so cool. Incredible. I <laughs> am so happy to have learned this this morning. Oh, <laughs> I will say that even though they survived the Ice Age, they're not actually very good at dealing with ice or snow. <laughs> Oh, okay, okay. They're very small, and they've actually found that current-day Saiga are about, I think, 10% smaller than Ice Age Saiga, so they've gotten shorter. Aww. And like I said, they're only about 24 inches tall, and I found a couple sources that mentioned snow that's over 30 centimeters, which is about 11 inches, is kind of something that they cannot deal with. But that's like half their height, so I feel like that's pretty good. Yeah, I feel like that's reasonable. Like, I would have trouble in snow that was half my height. Like, yeah, it's fine. I mean, yes. <laughs> they're, they're doing their best, okay. <laughs> but it's not good enough. I mean, it is, because they are amazing survivors. Okay. I want to table the thought I just had. <laughs> oh, oh. 
You got some sass? I'll listen. Oh, I was just, I mean, can you call them good survivors if like a huge portion of one <laughs> sex of the animal dies off every year? Oh, well, yeah, that's that's what I'm getting to next. So, <laughs> okay. Haha, brainwaves. <laughs> they are amazing survivors. However, even the best, most miraculous, gorgeous animals have troubles every now and again. <laughs> Troubles. So, <laughs> so we can talk about mass die-offs first. Just get that out of the way. <laughs> oh God, is that different from what I was talking about? No, it, it's 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 part of what you were talking about. Okay, okay. There are two big die-off events that I want to talk about first. <laughs> okay. The first one is one that happens every year. <laughs> <laughs> So, you, you remember, and possibly our listeners remember, in the Two Truths and a Lie episode, I mentioned that the males, like, 90-95% of the males will die every year after breeding season. <laughs> so, it's not great. <laughs> it's not great, and it's very sad, but it's also kind of ridiculous and a little bit funny. So, it's Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's some bad logic but okay <laughs> thank you so the males the males fight during breeding season and these fights like i mentioned they have like a mane around their necks to protect themselves these fights can be extremely bloody um not only can males kill each other um they are also just constantly on the move their testosterone is through the roof and they are trying to get a harem of females, which a really successful male can have anywhere from like 10 to even 50 females in his harem. So grief. there's a lot on the line. And these males get so distracted that they just don't eat for a couple weeks. <laughs> so at the end of breeding season, they are extremely weak. If they don't just die from starvation, a lot of times they get picked off by predators. So it is estimated that 90 to 95% of all reproductive males each year die after breeding season, which is insane. It's, it's just insane. Yeah. Admittedly, it does take about three, like two to three years until males are reproductively mature. So it's not like every single male is dying, but that's still absolutely ridiculous but what if i told you that <laughs> females sometimes face similar problems no no uh no how how are they still a, a species that exists <laughs> i don't know they're just trying their little antelope best okay <laughs> so females will gather in huge herds during birthing season which is really smart because more eyes to look out for danger are always a plus. And having lots of babies all at once, because each, each female will usually have twins, if not possibly triplets. So having lots of babies means, hey, they can't kill all of them if predators find us. So they got some extras. A lot of animals do this. We have the brood X cicadas that are emerging now and will be emerging this summer. They're doing the same thing. If all of us come out at once, they can't get us all, and some of us will survive. <laughs> However. Oh, God. 
when the females gather in these huge herds, disease can be a huge problem. So in 2015, over 200,000 female saiga and their young died after gathering for these huge birthing in these huge birthing herds. At the time, that was about 70% of the remaining saiga population. Oh wow. Just gone in less than a month. Oh no. Yeah. These guys are critically endangered. They've, they struggle from all sorts of different things, from climate change to habitat loss to overhunting. They have a hard life on the steppe. <laughs> Winters Jeez. are getting colder and drier. Summers are getting hotter and drier. And they can't find water. So, yeah. I mean, they lost 70% of the entire Saiga population in a month in 2015. And that is absurd. Oh, yeah. Wow. And upsetting. Yeah. <laughs> so BBC's uh, Planet Earth 2, their team was actually there and witnessed that die-off event. So the Grasslands oh, no. episode of Planet Earth 2 is absolutely amazing. And I think that they touch a little bit on that. So it's absolutely heartbreaking. And I can't imagine actually seeing that in person, especially like, you know, you go there and you're, you, you want to see this beautiful, you know, synchronous birthing event. And then they just all fucking die. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, that's like, horrible. Yeah. Like, and when things like this happen, you know, genetic bottlenecks are absolutely a worry afterwards. When you yeah. lose that much of the population, you know, if another disease comes around and the remaining few that are left aren't resistant to it, it could wipe out that entire population of animals. Because like I said, these guys are kind of in five distinct populations across the steppe. Mm -hmm. So yeah. they, there's not a lot of interaction between the different populations. And it's, I mean, we almost lost that entire group. Yeah. I don't even have words. That's <laughs> horrifying. Yeah. And these guys have struggled for years, obviously, since they're critically endangered. And so that could be part of the reason why that die-off event even happened in the first place, is that there was already a genetic bottleneck in the past that led to, you know, a lot of those animals being very genetically similar and having similar, you know, weaknesses, I guess, to certain diseases, mm. which made them all succumb to it all at once like that. Golly. Okay. Yeah. And it's not like you can tell Psycho, okay, this year, let's play it safe. Let's not gather in huge herds to give birth. Like, that's just a natural part of their, you know, life history that they're going to keep doing. So it's kind of yeah. scary. Yeah, absolutely terrifying. Oh, man. Yeah. But let's let's back up in the timeline of the Saiga. Um, yes. Uh, okay. Yeah. Do you have something to add? Please. No. I'm just really apprehensive now about <laughs> now that I know that it's so much worse than I thought for these guys. <laughs> okay. They've, they've had a rough time, let me tell you. So another huge fall of the Saiga in the past uh, happened in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And it coincided very strongly with the fall of Soviet Russia, which... Fascinating. Yeah, it's very interesting. And I'm not saying that, you know, 
the Soviet Union didn't do terrible things and that thousands of people died because of, you know, basically incompetence of their government. But the Soviet Union had very strict border policies. They had very strict, you know, guidelines on how the environment should be kept and protected. And that was very good for at least the Saiga and a lot of the other wildlife living there. So after the Soviet Union fell, Saiga numbers also fell by nearly 95% within just a couple decades. That is so significant. Yeah. Wow. How did the the way that they handled wildlife and natural environments change significantly enough to have that kind of an impact on these guys? So I tried to dive into it a little bit more, and it was kind of hard to research. Um, One big thing that I saw was that, you know, primarily it was just those closed borders. So they weren't allowing people in or out. And so the Saiga had this huge piece of land that they could roam on. There were also things like collective farming where, you know, it didn't unfortunately work out for people a lot. Like it was supposed to be this, you know, saving grace that kept people from dying from famine, but it ended up not working at all. And literally thousands of people died just from this failed collective farming Mm. uh, kind of experiment, I guess. But those, those farms were not necessarily creating habitat for Saiga, but they, you had to keep the land healthy in order to have those farms to an extent, and it seemed like that kind of had something to do with it, but I am not any kind of an expert on Soviet Russia or the land there at all. So please, I encourage you to do your own research, but it was kind of hard to see how those two things coincided, but it very much did. As soon as Soviet the Soviet Union fell, Saiga numbers fell dramatically. As to why exactly that happened, I'm not quite sure. Hmm. I found a few different resources that had different numbers as far as like how many were surviving after this, but it kind of ranges a little bit. Mm -hmm. So in the early 2000s, I've even heard specifically the year 2002, there were only a few hundred Saiga left. I saw from 500 to 800 Saiga, but definitely under a thousand Saiga left in the entire world. (sighs) Ooh. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that was primarily due to, you know, again, the borders being opened and hunting by humans, starting both for sport, you know, and harvesting for meat and for horns. So 800 Saiga, definitely a genetic bottleneck. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And then again in 2015, after that mass die-off event. Mm. And when they have twins, are they fraternal or identical? I believe that they are fraternal. I was just wondering, in, in terms of the genetics of their population, are yeah. they like basically co- like creating two doubles of their genetics every single time they have twins or whatever? Yeah, for sure. I don't know how that works in like lambs and things like that either that have twins. But um, okay, anyway, thanks. <laughs> yeah, I know for sure in goats and lambs, it's pretty much always fraternal. So twins can look dramatically different from the same mom. So sure. Okay. Cool. So I mentioned, you know, that harvesting for meat and for horns, and that definitely is something that the Saiga is still struggling with, is illegal harvesting. I found a really, really hard-to-watch video um, that was a documentary talking about Saiga and some of the struggles that they're, you know, struggling with. (laughs) (laughs) 
and it does show um, poachers taking some animals. Um, I do have it linked in the blog post on the website. So if you want to watch it, you're welcome to. I have a content warning on there. But it's it's pretty hard to watch. But it was also a really well done documentary because they actually talked to the poachers and they went along with them on one of their rides to go collect some saiga. And I think that that is something important to keep in mind because when they talked to those people, they, you know, they admitted it's dangerous, it's illegal, and it's actually unsustainable. Like they've seen the saiga populations drop every year. Mm-hmm. But they keep doing it because they're desperate to feed their families. And that doesn't mean that it's it's okay to do and that I think that they should be doing it. But I think mm-hmm. that it's important that most of the people, and maybe not most, but at least some of the people that are breaking the law and they're poaching and they're illegally harvesting things, they aren't doing it because they hate animals. They're doing it because they're desperate. Yeah. And that's not something that is talked about very often. Mm-mm. And there's ways to address those things that would benefit the people and the wildlife. But until it's, yeah, yeah. It. Thank you for bringing up the human dimension and reminding us to have compassion for the needs of people. Yes. Because they shouldn't be doing this, but they also shouldn't have to do this to survive. <laughs> yes. You know, Yeah. And there's been a lot of really successful conservation programs, like especially in Africa, where when you give these people other options like ecotourism or, you know, and, you know, people that are killing elephants when they protect their farms, you give them a beehive to scare the elephants off instead. Like if you give them other options and empower them, then a lot of times, you know, they stop doing it. And Mm -hmm. We also don't want to go into, like, the white savior complex. Like, I need to save all these people. But yeah, it's, you know, it's it's a complicated conservation conversation. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's so easy to just point fingers and say, you know, the saiga horns being poached or the elephant ivory being poached for, you know, traditional medicine is, you know, evil and horrible. But it's also really hard to understand what a huge cultural significance those items are. And I mean, from an I'm an outsider, I I don't know. I don't know the entire story. And there's plenty of things that Americans do that don't make any sense, too. We have weird magic cure-alls that have no scientific basing that people use all the time. And those can be really problematic, too. So I, I I have a hot take for you. Are you ready? Uh, sure. (laughs) So some of those magic cure-alls, things like healing crystals or essential oils, or like even things like fish oil. Um, A lot of times fish oil is used for literally everything, both in human and in pets. But the things that it is said to help you with have literally no scientific basis. For, fish oil, like fish oil, fish oil. Yeah, fish oil can be helpful. So, like, I've seen fish oil being prescribed to like pets as like a joint supplement, but there's no scientific basis saying that it actually helps joints. It can help, uh, like skin and fur quality in pets, <laughs> but it has not. It does not help joints. <laughs> and 
when we're talking about things like essential oils and um, incense and things like that, a lot of those are straight up hurtful and cause cancer yeah. and seizures and all sorts of really horrible things. And then we could say, oh, well, people can do what they want to their bodies. At least they're not hurting the environment. But they are. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good point, Nicole. We, yes. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So I looked into sandalwood in particular. Sandalwood oh. is a super popular incense and essential oil. I have sandalwood incense. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that very few people realize that it is actually harvested from rural trees that are extremely endangered and overexploited. <gasps> I had no freaking idea. Wait, yeah. uh, seriously? Yes. They're not like farmed or anything? Nope. They are harvested oh um, primarily from Hawaii and then uh, as well as I think Australia. Um, <sighs> but I found this really cool article put put out by United Plants Savers, written by Dr. Susan Leopold. She looked specifically at the trees on Hawaii, and these trees grow extremely slowly and take decades to replenish themselves when they're harvested. Decades. (laughs) And the remaining, like, there's hardly any trees remaining in Hawaii of these sandalwood trees. It's very upsetting. And admittedly, it's not like they're just harvested for, you know, essential oils or incense. They're also used, they're logged for different things. But if you are using sandalwood, you are supporting that. So, just saying. Okay, I'm not going to buy sandalwood anymore. (laughs) That's my hot take for the day. I want more. (laughs) Give us more hot takes. This is really eye-opening. I literally had no idea. And I see sandalwood everywhere. Everywhere. But yeah, so we make poor decisions sometimes <laughs> without much scientific basis for it. Oh, you mean humanity. And yes, 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 yes. <laughs> humanity in general. The collective we. <laughs> okay. Yes. It's like, yeah, we do. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but according to the article that I was reading by United Plant Savers, over 90% of the original hardwood forest um, on Hawaii is gone, with some estimates at only 1% remaining. Wow. So these are extremely endangered uh, trees and an extremely endangered ecosystem. So kind of sad. But now that we know all the terrible things that have happened to the saiga, let's, let's look forward. Let's, let's bring a little ray of sunshine and light and happiness and hope into this conversation. Because there's a lot of really cool conservation going on with Saiga. The first one I wanted to share with you is by Fauna and Flora International, and in 2019 they reported, quote, A new population census from Kazakhstan has revealed an increase in Saiga antelope numbers from 152,000 to 334,000 within just two years, offering a glimmer of hope for a critically endangered species that has been in free fall for decades. Uh, that's, that's so good. It's still described only as a glimmer of hope, though. <laughs> yeah. But I'll take a glimmer. Yeah. I mean, their population over doubled in two years. And that's absolutely 100% like due to the conservation efforts around them. So amazing. There is one really small population on the Yersert Plateau that in the past has dropped to really, really low numbers. It is the lowest population of Saiga, um, but they also reported that this 
little population, quote, had enjoyed a particularly strong resurgence. Numbers have risen to 5,900, an increase of almost 130% since 2019. So, wow. Okay. Amazing. Aww. Yeah. Almost 6,000 doesn't sound like a lot, but for that particular population, it is. So, yeah. very exciting. Good job, little guys. I know. And there's a lot of different things that are going on to help these guys. Some some of them are more simple, like GPS collars and things like that to monitor where they're going. And that's really, really important because, again, these guys are highly migratory. And if we know where they're going, then we can try to, you know, preserve the landscape around them. It also helps find uh, those big birthing grounds so that they can get calf numbers and things like that, as well as success rates on calving. Um, They can also help with things like uh, road crossings, things like that. So oh, yeah. very, very important to know where these animals are going. Absolutely. And it's kind of crazy that in some cases they don't. Um, yes. Is it's it... such a big landscape, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, is it primarily like a governmental organizations or NGOs? Or like who is the one doing this work with uh, GPS transmitters and stuff in these different populations? A lot of times it is nonprofit organizations, so NGOs. But I have seen definitely, like, especially uh, Mongolia has some pretty strong um, conservation work that is government run, Mm. but a lot of it is NGOs. Yeah. Okay. Ah, it's cool that I love Mongolia. Oh my God. (laughs) They're so awesome. Yeah, always blow me away with their wildlife conservation efforts and stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's that's really cool. Um, And it's, like you said, so important to be able to find out where they're even at and you know, it's so important for monitoring. And I, I don't know about Saiga, but I assume they're like a lot of other ungulates where, you know, their most vulnerable time is when they are calving and when, when there are yeah. very young calves on the ground. And so if there's like some sort of special pressure being put on those areas too, like you can't figure that out if you don't know where they're calving. Yes, absolutely. There's also a lot of both aerial and on the ground counts of the population numbers because how else are we going to be able to know if the conservation is working? (laughs) So that is a huge undertaking, but very impressive. Going back to the USERT plateau, that really, really small population of Saiga, um, I found a paper in 2020 from National Geographic that mentioned in 2019, there was just four calves born. But in 2020, yeah. In 2020, they found over 500 calves born that year. So huge increase in numbers. Yeah. I I can't even. (laughs) That's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And it helps that, you know, they give birth to twins, but still amazing. Okay, yeah. But like four calves. You you might as well not have calves, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, didn't we just talk about how their strategy is to, like, produce so many that they can't possibly all be eaten? Yeah, no, four calves can definitely be eaten. Yes, you are absolutely (laughs) right. (laughs) Thank you. And I mentioned earlier about how climate change is a real issue for these guys as we get the harsher winters, but also the harsher summers. And, you know, the steppe is really struggling with droughts in the summer, And water is a huge resource limiter 
on the steppe just because it already is so dry. These Mm -hmm. droughts are just decimating the wildlife. But the World Wildlife Fund is working with local governments and populations to help create artificial watering holes for saiga and other animals. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. A lot of the watering holes are actually based around old wells that are leftover relics from the collective farming age when the Soviet Union was still together. So kind of cool. That is so cool. Do they, they can't drink salt water, right? I do not think so. Okay. I know, I know some animals on the steppe are able to drink Mm -hmm. some brackish water or live in brackish water, depending on the species. And and that can help them too. But yeah. Oof. Oof. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Another really cool organization doing some really awesome work is the Saiga Conservation Alliance. So they have, they are a great resource on learning more about Saiga and the conservation efforts going on around them. Their website is really, really good. It's saiga-conservation.org. We'll have a link in the show notes, obviously. And they even put together a Saiga Day. What is a Saiga Day? It's like not a national holiday. Like they want it to get to that point, but it's a day all about learning about the saiga and raising awareness of its struggles and its triumphs. So it's not just, you know, the sad stuff, but we have to have the happy stuff in there too. And I just love it. (laughs) And in the past, it's been celebrated in early May. So this episode is actually super timely. And I'm just going to say that I did it for Saiga Day, even though I can't actually find a specific (laughs) date on any website. (laughs) So it's hard. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay. Yeah, it is hard, you know, but it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. I have have one last little thing, unless you have something to add about Saiga Day. No, no, no. Yeah, you you confused me when you said they're trying to make it a national holiday. Like, what nation? Well, it's celebrated, I believe, in Kazakhstan, and I think maybe Mongolia as well currently, Um, but it's more just individual schools or organizations celebrating it versus like a city or a country or, you know, anything like that. Mm. Okay. I feel like it should just be an international holiday, a global celebration of Saiga. Uh, why not? I mean, I think it should be. Absolutely. All right, let's do it. Okay. Let's if do we it. can figure out what day it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's rough. Uh, Okay. Anyway, uh, do continue. Thank you. I just had kind of one last little thing. So the IUCN Red List has Saiga populations at about 120,000 individuals. And again, that doesn't sound like a lot, but that's up from 500 or 800 in 2002. So just in 18 years, we got their population that high. And great strides have been made in Saiga conservation and awareness. And I truly believe that if they have the room to roam, they very well might make the comeback that they deserve. And I love them so much. And I truly hope that you do too now, dear listener and dear Rachel. <laughs> That's it. That's Saiga. I love them. Thank you so much, Nicole. That was an absolute delight. And Saiga Antelope are a delight too. I don't know why I like hesitated. 
<laughs> yeah, it's kind of rude, honestly. Um, no, no, it wasn't because they aren't incredible. It's because I imagined looking into their eyes and I became absolutely captivated oh. by like the doll-eyed stare of the psycho antelope <laughs> for a moment. I had a spiritual experience just now with the psycho antelopes oh. in my brain. That's all. Okay, anyway. That's beautiful. Mm, sure. <laughs> just like the Saiga's eyelashes. They're so good. Beautiful. Um, well, thanks everybody for listening to The Best Biome. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend and consider leaving us a review on Podchaser or Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out a lot. And as a quick reminder, we will be going to an every other week schedule for the podcast um, while we get our life back in track. So we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. I'm going to wait for my animals to stop screaming outside the door. I might just have to let them cat. Murphy! Come on, Murphy. You can come in, but you can't scream. Go sleep. <laughs>